I wasn't going to let you get away from it, man. <laughs> but um, going, getting back to, to the serious note here, um, and, and I say this with all the sincerity I can say, I, I don't know of a Bible study that I've done that has impacted me more than this has. Uh, and it, it, there could have been, but I don't remember a Bible study that has impacted me like the, 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 like the Sermon on the Mount. As I said earlier uh, this morning, I have read this, the, the Sermon on the Mount many times, and I've, I've, I've preached on parts of it many, many times, but I've never really studied it and dug into it. And, and so tonight, basically, what we're going to do is, is a basic, it, 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 it's just an introduction to what we're going to be studying. Um, there are a lot of misunderstandings uh, about this great sermon preached by our Lord. Uh, a lot of misunderstandings. <clears throat> and hopefully as we go through, we'll put some of those to rest. Um, this sermon is by far the greatest sermon that has ever been preached. Now I want you to think of the impact of that statement. There have been sermons preached by men that <clears throat> the first one that pops into my, hand, in my mind is the uh, uh, sinners in the hand, hands of an angry God. Literally hundreds, if not thousands of people were saved and their lives changed because of a single sermon. But even the man, I, I'm blanking on the man who, Jonathan Edwards, even Jonathan Edwards would say his greatest attempt would be eclipsed by this message, this sermon by our Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest sermon that has ever been preached. And if, <clears throat> if we understand that that's exactly what it was, it, it helps us put in perspective the understanding of the sermon. Before we get into it, there are some details that I think are important for understanding um, uh, the sermon. So I hope you take notes here because this is th these. I'm going to give you five things tonight that will help you interpret, or not not interpret. That's not a good word. Uh, understand the the Sermon on the Mount. Five 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 things that. If you, if you get a hold of these five things, and, th and this is one of the things I had to do in my study. I had to wrap my head around these five things because it, 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 changed, it changed everything, these five things. Okay? So, the first one. And this, all of these are important, okay? But this, this one. Um, number one, we must understand... The mind of the preacher. In order to understand the Sermon on the Mount, you have to understand the sermon or the mind of the preacher of the sermon. 
Now, for you to understand sermons that I preach, I, I remember when um, Brian and Orlando started coming to our church. Uh, I am a very different style preacher than they were used to. And he told me later, he said, it took me a while to get used to you because I, I am a lot more mellow than the, the, than the preacher he had, used to have. And, 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 and there's nothing wrong with that. But people that come to our church, it, if you're not used to the type of pastor that I am, it takes time for you to, to understand me. And the, the way I think Chris knows me inside and out, he knows, I mean, honestly, he, he understands me. Uh, that's a scary thought, Chris. <laughs> but he knows, yeah, he knows, he knows when I have a migraine. Even when I, I can fool the, mo the majority of you, but Chris always knows. Why? Because he knows me. He, he knows me on a different level. And if we are going to understand the Sermon on the Mount, we need to understand the mind of the preacher. The only way to understand the mind of the preacher is through the Holy Spirit. This preacher. Okay, not me. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Who are we talking about? Who is the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus is. Okay, so to understand the mind of the preacher, you have to understand how he illuminates or how he talks to us. Okay, I came across a definition here. I want to read this to you about illumination. It says, simply put, illumination is the spiritual, uh, it, it, um, in the spiritual sense, uh, is turning on the lights of understanding in some areas. When the enlightenment deals with new knowledge or future things, we call it prophecy. Okay? When the enlightenment deals with understanding and applying knowledge already given, we call it illumination. Okay? So things that we have already learned or that God is showing us in the Word of God is illumination. Psalm chapter 119, 105. Uh, thy, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. He goes on. One thing uh, that, it, it, that is sometimes overlooked in the discussion of illumination is the purpose of illumination. You know, we talk about illumination, how the, the Spirit of God illuminates our minds and our thinking as we study Scripture and we get to know God. God illuminates or he, he turns on the lights for us, so to speak. But why does he do that? The author continues. <clears throat> to hear some arguments, it would seem the whole purpose of illumination is a... Uh, excuse me, is an accurate and academic understanding of God's word. There is no question that God desires us to uh, accurately understand what he has given us. Words have meanings, and we must pay attention to the to details of those words. If, however, we stop there, we simply have academic understanding of facts and philosophies, which do no one any good. 
Illumination always points to action. So, what is the purpose of illumination? Does God reveal these things to us? And, and the, the context that we're talking tonight is a Sermon on the Mount. Does God reveal these things to us so that we can have more information? No, he gives us this, this information so that we can change our lives through it. Why does God help us understand his word? So that we can live in the light. I love the definition of illumination. Understanding the mind of Christ <clears throat> is critical to understanding the Sermon on the Mount. Spending time with God in His Word. You, you know, the, the context of what we're talking about tonight is the Sermon on the Mount. But if that's the only thing we read then we will never understand the mind of the preacher. We need to understand and consume the entire book in order for God then to illuminate us and, and, and help us understand and then put into practice the things that we learn. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Simon Peter, a servant of an, uh, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith <clears throat> with us through the righteousness of God our, and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus. And Jesus, our Lord, <clears throat> according as his divine power, hath given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us <clears throat> to his glorious virtue. Knowledge. We need to understand God and why and how God thinks. You know, <clears throat> God has given us everything we need to know about him right here. Everything. And, and, and I'm here to tell you, you don't need to go to Bible college to figure it out. You, you, you don't. Because it, it, as, you, as you read and you seek God... God will illuminate. That is the promise. Now, <clears throat> does education help? Absolutely, education helps. And that's why we're here tonight, to learn, to grow. Why are we going to study the, the Sermon on the Mount so that you can walk away and say, wow, I've got more information now. No, that's not why we're doing it. The hope is that you can walk away and say, look back weeks weeks from now and look back and say, you know what? I'm walking with God closer today than I was back then. And it's because of what I'm learning about the mind of God. That's the goal. <clears throat> There's only one way 
to understand the mind of the preacher, and that is to get to know him. Why does Chris know me so well? Because he's got to know me. He's been, he's been my sound guy for, what, 10 plus years. You know, he knows me. <laughs> he, knows, he knows when I'm, when I'm about to make a, 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 a mistake. He, he covers for me all the time. You have no clue what he does for me. <clears throat> yeah, I agree, buddy. <laughs> hey, John, he's fine. Sit down, man. Okay, number one. We need, we must understand the mind of the preacher. Number two, we must understand that he is our Savior before he is our teacher. Okay? This is a big mistake a lot of people make. They think he is the teacher and they forget he is the Savior. We have to understand as we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, we have to understand that before Jesus Christ is our teacher, he is our Savior. The tendency of our world today is to look at Christ as a great teacher. <clears throat> and, 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 and that's not that's not who he is. That's not who he is. Now, is he a great teacher? Yes, he is. When I was in college... <clears throat> I don't talk a lot about it, but I, when I was in college, I was also a professor in college. I taught, I taught in college. Is that a professor or a teacher? I was a teacher. I wasn't really a professor. I was more of a teacher than a... Anyway, anyway I was a teacher in the college that I attended. And because I, was a college, I, I, I taught at the same college I attended... It put me in a awkward position because on one hand I was a student and on the other hand I'm a teacher and that meant I would be in class with people I was teaching does is that you follow me it was just kind of an awkward thing and <clears throat> Most of the, well, all, all, all but one of my students understood because, partially because I was so much older than the majority of the students, they, they could get past the fact that I was also a student at the same time, except for one student. He and I were close to the same age, and <clears throat> he just had a problem adjusting to the fact that I was not his peer, but his teacher. You follow my logic here? And the career that I had of teaching, I think I was taught for about four years, four, I think about four years. He was the only student I ever failed because he refused to do the work. Because he couldn't, he could not get past the fact that I wasn't a peer; I was a teacher. You follow me? And as I, as I, as I've been thinking about this this point here, we must understand that He is our Savior before He is our teacher. We need to make that adjustment in our minds, even though the Sermon on the Mount 
is a sermon, hence a teaching opportunity, we must, if we're going to understand the mind of the preacher, we must understand the position of the preacher as well. The position of the preacher is he is our savior first. Then he is our teacher. <clears throat> if Christ, let, let me ask you, let me ask you, I've got a couple questions here. So let, let me ask you a couple questions here. What would happen if Christ was only a teacher? There would be no hope because we would have no Savior. And if Christ was only a teacher, the standards or the, 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 the sermon that he gives us that we call the Sermon on the Mount would only create an unattainable standard or goal that we could never reach. But because he's our Savior, that changes everything. Question. Did, did Jesus teach important things? Absolutely. Okay. Hands down. Question. Did Jesus come to teach us important things? He came to save the lost. That's why he came. A byproduct of his coming is the fact that he teaches us important things. Romans chapter 12 and verse, 12, verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may be able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We have to understand, secondly, that he is our Savior before he is our teacher. Number three, <clears throat> and we might get done early tonight. I'm kind of cruising through these pretty fast. Number three, we must understand that the sermon causes conflict in the heart of natural men. We must understand that the sermon causes conflict in the hearts of natural men. Now, before I go any further, can anybody tell me who is what 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 do I mean by natural men? I'm sorry. Okay, somebody without the Holy Spirit. Uh, what'd you say? Un unredeemed. Okay. Anybody else want to add to that? Okay. It's when can can a can a saved person be be a natural man? From time to time, when we get in our flesh and we allow the, our flesh to dictate our thinking, I, I believe, personally, I believe we can become natural men. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. Now we have received 
not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the, the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we spake, not in the word which, uh, which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy, the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So, let's go back to this idea of illumination. What happens with illumination? Our spirit and the spirit of God communicate, and now all of a sudden things start to become clear. Have you ever sat in a sermon, read something in the Bible, and it's like a light bulb just goes... That's illumination. That's when God starts to put all the pieces together in your mind, and not all of a sudden it all starts to make sense. And the natural man, when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount becomes nothing but a list of moral guidelines to the natural man. Unattainable guidelines. But what does the natural man do? Now, how, how many of you, um, prior to being saved, thought that the Ten Commandments was something great to live by? Okay, okay, most of us did. How well did you do at it? <laughs> not, not good, huh? <laughs> None of us did. Why? Because it, it, it was an unattainable goal. And to the natural man, the Holy, the, the 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 Sermon on the Mount, are just moral guidelines to muddle their way through life, trying to earn their way to heaven, trying to be good enough. Paul understood this struggle between the natural man and the spiritual man, probably more than most people, I think. But in Romans chapter 7, verses 18 and 20, he said this, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, or the natural man, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. So what is Paul saying here? I mean, that's a, that's a, that, this is a tongue twister right here. But let, let's put it in 21st century English. What is Paul saying? Uh, I'm sorry? I, I'm trying, but it seems like every time I turn around... I'm getting, I'm getting roadblocks everywhere I go. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We'll blame it on Steve's ice cream. Okay. But, but isn't that the struggle we all face? We want, we want to do right. 
But then that temptation is always there. That struggle is always there. The struggle is real. And can be a source of great conflict, especially in the life of a natural man. Now, what, what um, for lack of better terminology, what advantage does a born-again believer have to an unsaved person? Okay, we have the Spirit of God to help us. Okay? And it, this, is, this, is, this is important that we get a hold of this because um, as we understand, that, as, we, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount and we, and we talk about everything, we're going to see that it is, it is impossible for us to fulfill this on our own. It's impossible. Point number four. And we we will finish early. So, um, <clears throat> so point number four. We must understand that the sermon is not the law of the New Testament. Some people believe that <clears throat> Jesus, when he gave us the Sermon on the Mount, he was giving us a, a newer, updated version of the Mosaic Law. And that is not what this is. Uh, not even, not even close. <clears throat> the law. Um, who can tell me why God gave Moses the law that we call the law of Moses? Anybody? Okay. All right. Had too many people talking. Someone. One person. Okay, to point us to our need for a Savior, to prove to us that we can't do it. Okay, that is the whole purpose of the law. To, 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 to prove to us that we cannot do it on our own. The Levitical law, that, or the, the law of Moses, however you want to say it, had one job, and that was it. But what happened? Something happened. Okay, well, before that. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry? Well, yeah, they, yeah, they had a lot of sacrifices. Um, no, pride. Pride came in and said, and, and, and what the, 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 the scribes and the Pharisees we're the keepers of the law. Hey, we have attained. We can do this. In fact, not only, not only did they claim to be able to keep the law, they added to the law. And it was impossible to the point that today a, a Orthodox Jew on the Sabbath, will not turn on and off a light switch because that's work. That's how, that's how ridiculous it has gotten because they kept adding and adding and adding. 
And by doing that, what are they doing? They're, 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 the, the law became a strain. And it became a, an, un, an unattainable goal. The Sermon on the Mount is intended to show us how we can live through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is not impossible. It is attainable. Now, is it easy? No, it's not. But it is attainable. Matthew, we finally hear. <laughs> At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us one last illustration. And I think, as I've studied and, and looked at this, I think that this illustration puts in perspective the entire Sermon on the Mount. And that's what Jesus would do with his, his illustrations and his, his parables. He, he, he gave us word pictures to sum up major doctrinal things. And he, could, he had this way of just giving us word pictures. And, and we just look at that and think, wow, is it really that easy? But Jesus here gives us in Matthew chapter 7, again, what I believe is a perspective of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Let's start reading in verse 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these things, what things? These things of mine. Okay, and when we get here, we're going to restudy this. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I'm just trying to put it in perspective for us. Therefore, whosoever uh, heareth these things of mine, or the, the message I just gave you, and doeth them, I liken him unto a wise man, which buildeth his house on a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon the house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which buildeth his house upon the sand. And the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Again, we'll talk more about this in detail, but there's one word in here that I want to focus in on tonight, and that is the word rock. The word rock here is the Greek word petra. Anybody know what the, what the Greek word petra means? Okay, the Greek word petra means bedrock not just a rock not just a big rock but the bedrock it is the foundation so what he's saying here in essence what i believe he's saying here is <clears throat> that the sermon on the mount is the bedrock in which we can build our lives upon
would Jesus give us a bedrock to build our lives upon that would be impossible for us to do? No, he wouldn't. And he likens the person who does these things to the person who builds their house on the bedrock. But the person who says, ah, I'm going to live my life the way I want, he likens them to a man who builds his house on the sand. John Phillips, who I'm sure you will hear lots of John Phillips quotes as we study the Sermon on the Mount, because he wrote extensively on this, on this sermon. He said this, The Sermon on the Mount was addressed to people with heavenly rather than earthly hopes. In other words, who's he writing it to? Or who's he, who's he, who's he preaching the sermon to? People who, want, who are looking for, for hope. The discourse, <clears throat> while embodying the law of the kingdom, uh, as the Mosaic law embodied the national laws of Israel, was not meant for, for Jews as Jews. It was meant for people who had been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. No natural man, however sweetly dispositioned, however zealous and sincere, however well-motivated um, and well-intended, can keep the Sermon on the Mount. Only Jesus did. Jesus took the Mosaic Law. I, lo I love this, the, the way he does this. Uh, he, he took the Mosaic Law and passed it through a prism of his glorious mind and broke the light of the law into primeval colors. <clears throat> he said, in effect, obviously only, only born again of the Holy Spirit, people indwelled with the power of the Holy Spirit can live that kind of life. Christ in you, the hope of glory is the key. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. The genius of the gospel lies in the fact that as Christ once gave his life for us, he now gives his life to us. He lived the life himself of 33 and a half years and now continues to live the life <clears throat> in the lives of surrendered believers. I love what he says here because this, this, this really makes a lot of sense. He says the genius of the gospel lies in the fact that Christ once gave his life for us. Now he gives his life to us. And that's what this sermon is all about. Understanding the mind of the preacher who preached the sermon. Christ. And as we go through this sermon, we will find that that's exactly what he's doing. How, how, is, how is Jesus Christ giving himself to us today? Through the Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is alive in the Holy Spirit helping us today. And I praise God for that.
He gave his life for us. And he gave his life to us. Number five. So let, let, let me review here very, very quickly. Number one, we must understand the mind of the preacher. Number two, we must understand that he is our uh, savior before he is our teacher. We must understand the sermon <clears throat> uh, causes conflict in the hearts of natural men. We must understand that the sermon is not the law uh, of the New Testament. Number five, we must understand the key to the sermon is humility. The key to the sermon is humility. When Christ gave his life to us, that was the ultimate act of humility. God the Father came down and humiliated himself to become like his creation. The creator became like the creation. The ultimate act of humility. And we will find as we go through the Sermon on the Mount that Christ <clears throat> will exalt humility and condemn or rebuke pride. We'll see that over and over throughout the sermon. Look at Matthew chapter 6. We'll start reading in verse 1. It says, And take heed <clears throat> that you do not, uh, that you do your alms, uh, excuse me, take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, what, what are alms, by the way? Okay, it would be kind of like your tithes or offerings. But what the Jews would do is when they went to the temple, they had these big brass drums <clears throat> that had a hole in the middle. Okay? Have you all ever seen those little penny games where kids will drop a penny in and it'll go around and around and around and around and eventually drops down the middle? Well, it was kind of something like that. But what the, what the, what the Jews would do is instead of just getting a few large denomination coins and just carefully slipping them in, they would get a whole bunch of pennies, if you would. And then they would go in and they would make a big show and they would, they would throw them in and it would make all this noise and everybody would go, ooh, wow, that guy must be rich. Okay, so that's what this is talking about here, okay? Just so you kind of understand the, the concept here. Verse 2. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, uh, do not sound the trumpet <laughs> uh, before thee, uh, as, uh, as, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may uh, have glory of men. Verily I say to you, they have their reward. But when thou doest thine alms, or, or doest alms, let not thine left hand know what thy right hand uh, hath done, uh, um, uh, hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father, which seeth in secret, himself shall reward thee openly. So, what is he saying here to the in this? 
Okay, he, what is Christ doing? He's exalting humility and he's rebuking pride. And we're going to see this theme over and over and over through this sermon. Proverbs chapter 16, <clears throat> verses 18 and 19. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Before it is uh, to be Excuse me, I'm trying to read too fast. Forgive me. Better it is to be of an humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Satan was cast out of heaven because of pride. We we talked about this the other night. It, 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 It prompted a thought. In Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, it says, uh, How art thou uh, fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou, how art thou cast down to the ground, which didst wait, uh, uh, weaken the nation? Excuse me. And thou hast said in thine heart, I have ascended into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the, the, the height of the clouds. I will be, what? Like the most high. Pride. Pride. The audacity that Satan had to think that he could be equal with the Creator. God hates pride. Pride has kept many people from getting saved. I've seen pride destroy many lives. I've seen it tear families apart. I've seen it destroy churches. Pride is a destructive thing. And the Bible condemns pride, but it exalts humility. And the Sermon on the Mount, Christ again will exalt humility in our lives. The word humility means meekness, lowliness, and absent of self. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of... uh, of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man hath a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Above all these, put on charity. Or what is what is the Greek word for the word charity there? Agape, agape love, unconditional love. But put on unconditional love which is the bond of perfectness. One of the things we're going to talk about a lot, probably through this sermon, is the, not not my sermon, but the Sermon on the Mount, is the word meekness. The word meekness is is an interesting word. It it, it indicates an, an obedient submissiveness to God, but with an unwavering, uh, enduring patience when facing op- opposition. Okay, 
when in our 21st century English vernacular or, or uh, uh, understanding of the word meekness, we almost think of a wimpy person. But that is that is the complete opposite of what the word meekness, when we see it in Scripture, what it means. Somebody who quietly and patiently stands against opposition. That's the word meekness. God has promised <clears throat> to give the uh, grace to the humble when he op- opposes pride. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace unto the lowly. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. Likewise, ye, ye, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elders. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. The key to the Sermon on the Mount is humility. And as we, as we study this over the next few weeks, we are going to see over and over and over not only the humility of Christ, but the, 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 the call for humility in our lives. And I told you we were going to be early, and I lied. <clears throat> we're right on time. <laughs> Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the opportunity to, to share my heart and to, to introduce this incredible, incredible opportunity that we have to study the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, Lord, as we uh, start peeling back the layers of this sermon that you gave us in Matthew, Lord, we ask that you would just speak to our hearts, that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us, and that you would help us to be more like you. Lord, help us to get a hold of understanding what true humility really is. We are thankful for all that you do. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.